the Anesthesia Podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this live Anesthesia Journal broadcast. On the day where we actually launched our brand new special supplement, which is all about regional anesthesia, we have two sessions over the next hour, four chairs armed with questions and 12 authors who've all worked tirelessly to provide you with this excellent issue. In session one, we're going to be discussing fundamentals of regional anesthesia, and we have our chairs, uh, Kijan Chin and Kareem Al Bogdadli. Um, uh, Jin acted as a guest editor for this issue, as well as uh, Ed uh, Mariana, who um, is also now an editor of the journal, and uh, Ed's going to be joining us later. Uh, but for this session, we're joined by Marina Gitman, David Bogod, Giorgio uh, Veneziano, Eric Albrecht, Lucy Dockrell, and Gavin Hamilton. If you have any questions for any of the authors, please tweet them to the journal, uh, Anis underscore journal, at the usual place. Uh, we're monitoring the journal Twitter um, webpage as this live broadcast continues, and I can send your um, questions back to them to the chairs. You can ask them in real time. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Jen, it's over to you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Mike. So um, our, our first question is going to be for Giorgio. Um, he has authored a brilliant uh, article on regional anesthesia and pediatrics, which I think is something that deserves to be better recognized and more widely employed. So, Giorgio, why, why do you think there's been this resurgence of interest in some of the older techniques like neuraxial anesthesia instead of general anesthesia in children? Uh, well, it's true. There has been a resurgence in a few of the pediatric regional anesthesia techniques that have sort of gone by the wayside in recent decades. Uh, namely, I would say infant spinal anesthesia and the epidural use of 2-chloroprocaine uh, in infants and small children. Uh, and in regards to the infant spinal anesthesia, I would say the interest was largely born out of uh, concerns about potential neurotoxicity of general anesthesia on the developing brain. And so what infant spinal anesthesia offered uh, to anesthesiologists, uh, surgeons, parents, is an alternative to avoid the potential uh, neurodevelopmental hazards that may be associated with general anesthesia. And so what we're seeing is that with the increased implementation, uh, there's a lot of other benefits that have been demonstrated that are lending, um, you know, to its popularity. And that's the, uh, you know, for instance, the obviated need for airway instrumentation with the decreased risk is associated with that and increased hemodynamic stability, uh, decreased OR times and costs, as well as increased patient uh, parent satisfaction. Uh, a lot of these patients are able to skip the first phase of recovery and uh, go to their parents immediately after the OR and uh, start feeding soon thereafter. So that goes a long way to uh, increasing uh, you know, parent satisfaction. And, um, you know, pediatrics obviously covers a broad spectrum of age groups ranging all the way from infants and neonates all the way up to teenagers who might belong to a different species altogether. But do you see regional anesthesia as having different applications in different age groups? Uh, you focus a lot on infants and neonates, but what about the older child? Mm -hmm. Where do you see regional there? Yeah, well, I think there are, historically, there's definitely been some differences. And then uh, out of necessity, I mean, the nature of surgery uh, between infants and older populations, it's different. I mean, a lot of uh, infant surgeries are truncal, a lot of abdominal thoracic surgeries. So that lends itself more to neuroaxial anesthesia. But what I think we're seeing now is a breakdown of those historical um, sort of avoidances of more peripheral nerve blocks in uh, infants. And so, for instance, just in recent years, 
there's been an infant's all reports of um, quadratus lumborum blocks and catheters, uh, paravertebral catheters, uh, and uh, erector spinae blocks. So um, you know we're we're really a lot of the things that were traditionally reserved to older children and adults are branching into uh, infants now. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Roger. Sure. Kareem, shall we move on? Yeah, so I've got the absolute pleasure of asking Eric, a good friend of mine, um, uh, questions about their, their paper on uh, adju adjuvants, adjuncts for regional anesthetic techniques. Uh, and uh, for anyone who does regional, you, you've probably put a little bit of thought into adjuvants. And I really encourage everyone to give this paper a good read because it's absolutely fantastic. And the question that I have for Eric, being the world expert on adjuvants, is if you had to recommend one adjunct to use, what would it be and why? So actually the answer is very, very easy. The short answer is dexamethasone by far. Um, why dexamethasone? So during the last decades, many, many molecules have been tested so far, such as epinephrine, um, clonidine, buprenorphine, dexmedetomidine, more recently, and dexamethasone. And among all these molecules, dexamethasone brings the highest increase in duration of analgesia. With dexamethasone, you increase the duration of analgesia by eight hours while with dexmedetomidine, we increase by six hours. And finally, clonidine only by two hours. And very, uh, that's very, very surprising, but with epinephrine, you only increase the duration of analgesia by one hour, one hour only. So again, the short answer is dexamethasone because we increase the duration of analgesia by eight hours. Okay, brilliant. Um, now, how does dexamethasone actually exert its effect to prolong the duration of regional anesthetic techniques? So we don't really know. There are three, three different hypotheses. The first one is that dexamethasone might work on the glucocorticoid receptors on the neurons, which then decrease the excitability of the C fibers. This is one mechanism of action potential mechanism of action. Now, the second one is because there is some kind of vasoconstrictive effect. And the third mechanism of action, which is probably uh, the most likely one, is that there is some kind of uh, a, a, a vascular absorption, and then it works through a systemic anti-inflammatory effect. Mm. Okay. So probably the most likely mechanism of action, again, is the systemic resorption. And the anti-inflammatory effect. So you've heard it here first, guys. Anti-inflammatory effects. Now, there's one final question because one of the key things that I think that we've been trying to achieve is improve access to regional anesthesia and improve access to effective regional anesthesia. And so, IV dexamethasone uh, uh, has has been strongly supported. Is there any role for perineural dexamethasone, or should we all just stick to IV? And again, the answer is very easy. We should stick to the IV uh, route of administration. Why? Because when you inject dexamethasone perineurally, you won't have any additional analgesic effect. Again, intravenously versus perineurally, you will achieve the same duration of analgesia. And then you have to bear in mind that when you use dexamethasone perineurally, it's an off-label route of administration. 
and you really want to be to stay away from from any trouble. So I definitely recommend to use dexamethasone intravenously. Perfect. Thank you. We'll talk about risk and trouble with David a little bit later. Um, uh, but you heard it here: uh, IV dexamethasone, anti-inflammatory effect. Let's all think about using that. I'm going to hand over to Jin once again to take us through the next paper. Thank you very much, Eric. Great. So the next paper we're going to talk about is a really pertinent one on regional anesthesia and cancer surgery that was written by Lucy Dockrell and Donald Buggy. I think we all have been touched by cancer in some ways. And uh, as enthusiasts, we all want to know if we can make an impact on recurrence rates, particularly with the use of regional anesthesia. Uh, I know it was a little disappointing for some of us to read the negative paper on paravertebral blocks in breast surgery. But Lucy, at the present time, with leaving that aside, how do you think regional anesthesia can influence outcomes for patients with cancer surgery? And when do you think it's indicated in this population of patients? The majority of patients with solid um, organ cancers will require a surgery and uh, some degree of tumor dissemination related to surgery is inevitable. The surgical stress response and immunosuppression, pain, inflammation, tissue hypoxia and angiogenesis have all been implicated in promoting tumor survival, proliferation and recurrence in the perioperative period. We know that there are benefits of regional anesthesia in patients undergoing major cancer surgery in terms of reductions in post-operative pain, in opioid requirement, and in post-operative complications. And it was hypothesized that also by mitigating some of those pro-tumor pathways um, associated with the perioperative period, potentially leading um, to, that this would potentially lead to improved long-term oncological outcomes. Um, some early retrospective studies supported this hypothesis, reporting benefits of regional anesthesia in terms of cancer recurrence in different tumours and with different regional anaesthetic techniques, including neuroaxial techniques um, for the most part, while other retrospective studies have been have done conflicting results um, in terms of cancer recurrence. As you mentioned, the first randomised control trial on the effect of regional anaesthesia on cancer outcome, which was published by Sessler and colleagues in 2019 found no significant difference between paravertebral and, uh, and regional anesthesia and volatile anesthesia in patients um, undergoing breast cancer surgery in terms of long-term outcomes and cancer recurrence. Um, there are further uh, randomized controlled trials on long-term effects of oncological outcomes of regional anesthesia in other tumor groups. And I suppose we're awaiting the results of those. Um, so as you've um, alluded to, in summary, there's no um, regional technique that has been shown to influence long-term oncological outcomes. However, um, in terms of um, when regional anesthesia is indicated in this patient group, Based on the current evidence, the indication for regional anesthesia should be based on patient characteristics and the uh, intended surgical intervention rather than specifically to treat or prevent cancer recurrence. Um, by reducing perioperative morbidity, reducing postoperative critical care length of stay, and by allowing uh, progression to the next stage of oncological therapy where indicated, regional anesthesia continues to very much have a central role in the perioperative care of many surgical oncology patients. Thanks, Lucy. I, mean, I think those are great points. And um, from my reading of it, it's also fair to say that certainly regional anesthesia doesn't confer any harm in terms of promoting recurrence. So it's almost like, why not use it 
if it's going to provide all these other fringe benefits. <laughs> you know, um, leaving breast surgery aside, a lot of the cancer surgery is targeted at the thoracic and abdominal area. And uh, a lot of studies have involved epidural analgesia. And we started to see a little bit of a decline in the popularity of this. Um, do you think we are losing a potential opportunity here? Um, and do you see fascial plane blocks as having any potential benefit in this uh, arena? Sure. Good question. Um, in terms of the evidence we have um the preclinical evidence, even within your axial um, blockade, there's evidence that um, thoracic epidurals block the sympathetic system um, and ameliorate the immune suppression seen um, um, during the perioperative period better than lumbar epidurals. And therefore, I think you could expect a different um, immunosuppression response and stress response um, with fascial plane blocks. However, given the evidence we or the benefits we are seeing with fascial plane blocks in terms of um, reductions in um, post-operative um, opioid analgesic requirements, um, particularly as part of enhanced recovery programs after surgery, uh, without some of the complications that we do see with neuroaxial techniques, I think that this is a, an area that could be explored in terms of um, uh, oncoanesthesia um, benefits, and it's likely to offer patients benefit. Thanks. So clearly a lot of work that still remains to be done and, and uh, an avenue worth pursuing. Kareem, I'm going to hand it back to you and move on to our next paper. Yeah, thank you very much. And just to highlight that that paper um, uh, that Lucy did with, Do with Donal, absolutely fantastic on, on uh, oncoanesthesia. It's still emerging. One RCT does not mean it's the end of it, okay? So we're still finding out more and, and just watch this space. But I'm going to move on to uh, Gavin Hamilton, who's done an absolutely fantastic paper on quality metrics of regional anesthesia. Brilliant systematic review. If you want to learn how to do a systematic review, read this paper. And if you want to know about quality metrics, well, you're in the right place. So I'm going to be asking Gavin, how do we best measure quality in regional anesthesia? Um, well, thanks. First of all, thanks for inviting me onto this podcast and live event. This is uh, extremely exciting. But I think that the key thing about uh, quality in general and in regional anesthesia is that there really isn't one measure that we can define the overall quality of care. Um, Don Berwick, who's known as the father of healthcare quality, nicely defines six different dimensions of quality, which include safety, effectiveness, patient-centeredness, timeliness, efficiency, and equity. Um, so in our systematic review that looked at quality indicators in <coughs> regional anesthesia, we did find that the major majority of quality indicators existed within the space of safety and effectiveness. Um, and this makes intuitive sense because for the most part, we're offering patients an elective procedure to manage their post-operative pain. So of course, safety and efficacy are clearly important uh, domains. But the other thing that we found that was relatively surprising was first of all, the lack of strong evidence for a lot of these quality indicators in the literature. Mm -hmm. And second of all, just the lack of consistency across regional uh, anesthesia societies and quality agencies in defining important quality indicators. So I think that what really highlighted to me is that working towards having a defined set of quality indicators um, that will encourage transparency across our institutions that are providing regional anesthesia will really help us learn from each other and also push us to become um, better for our patients. 
that sounds great. Do you have any plans to actually get that started? Or do you know if, if there's anything that's actually on the go to develop this? Um, so that's a good question. There are a number of groups that are working on this right now. And I think, um, especially in this space, the um, Delphi and modified Delphi methods are really important because it uses a, a nice framework where they um, are able to use expert and consensus opinions because within the field of quality, um, it's really difficult to, to perform RCTs to look at a lot of these indicators. So I think um, there's a lot of important work going on and I think that we'll continue to see more um, kind of um, of these indicators coming out across to, to become uh, uh, like a standardized set. Mm. And and just for the jobbing anesthetist in me, um, uh, I don't know if everyone, all of our viewers will understand what that means, but the, you know, your, your everyday anesthetist that, uh, that I am. Um, can you just explain very simply what the difference between structure, process and outcome indicator metrics are? Uh, for sure, I'd be happy to. So um, the structure process outcome framework that you're referring to is the Don and Bedian model of uh, quality, uh, which is which is basically a framework that's been around for quite a while since the 1960s um, that's that examines health services and, and quality. So granted, there are some critics of this model as it's relatively linear and simplistic, but I think it's a, a relatively nice paradigm for assessing the quality of care. And it uses the three interlinked but distinct categories. So with thinking about each of these terms in the context of regional, um, so first of all, the structure is the setting that supports and directs the provision of care. So does your institution have dedicated block rooms to perform regional anesthesia? Are there dedicated personnel to staff this area to ensure continuity efficiency? And is there does your institution have a catheter program, for example? Mm. Um, so second of all, the process is the act of healthcare providers delivering care. Um, so, for example, prior to the practitioner um, performing their uh, their block, are they performing timeouts? Um, what is the, what are the infection control practices that each practitioner is using? Um, and then, thirdly, the outcome just relates to the recovery restoration of function. Um, so, our institution collects collecting adverse events. So for example, infections, local anesthetic toxicities, uh, pneumothoraxes after interscaling blocks or paravertebral blocks, peripheral neuro neurological deficits after um, regional anesthesia, block failures, and of course, pain outcomes are very important outcomes. Um, so in general, I think the model is, is important as it will give the healthcare institutions that are providing regional anesthesia a common framework to work with um, for, for any initiative. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. Um, uh, Gavin, that was brilliant. And it's a really, really fantastic paper. I encourage everyone to read it. And thank you very much for highlighting um, uh, local anesthetic toxicity, because that dovetails nicely into our next brilliant paper. And I'm not biased when I call it a brilliant paper. I'll hand over to Jin now. So um, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce the next uh, author of our, our paper, Marina Gitman, who together with Alan McFarlane has written a fantastic summary of the current state of LAST in modern regional anesthesia. Uh, so Marina, clearly LAST is still an important consideration for those of us injecting local anesthetic into patients. But why do you think we've been unable to eliminate it completely as a complication? Thank you for inviting me to participate. Um, I'll go over the three um, elements that you had asked earlier. Why is it that despite the advances in ultrasound education and treatment, it still occurs? So uh, uh, let's start with ultrasound. So the use of ultrasound may decrease uh, the risk of direct intravascular uh, injection, but it will not decrease the risk of subsequent absorption. 
uh, of the drug, nor will it alert the operator to um, a gross overdose. It will not tell you that you may actually be giving too much drug. That's just judgment and human error. And for patients who may have risk factors for decreased threshold for toxicity, that subsequent abor um, uh, absorption may actually lead to that toxicity. And we know now that some of those risk factors include the extreme of age, the extremes of age, the elderly, infants, patients with decreased muscle mass, or patients with comorbidities such as ischemic heart disease with a low ejection fraction, or decreased renal or um, liver function, or patients with metabolic disorders. The other thing is that the use of um, the ultras ultrasound is largely used for peripheral nerve blocks and for other um, for other methods such as field blocks, for example, airway topicalization, um, local infiltration to mesent solution. We don't use ultrasound, so all the use of ultrasound will not help with decreasing local anesthetic toxicity in those instances. Uh, let's move on to education. Education only works for those who seek it. Um, and just to kind of segue into it, uh, we've, Dr. Weinberg, one of the other co-authors and one of my mentors and I, we've amassed a really nice database of case reports that we used to write the last three review papers. And it shows that the clinical picture of local anesthetic toxicity is evolving. And that's the important part of this continuing education. Um, one thing we found, one of the trends is that it can, um, a lot more cases happen outside of the operating room and a lot more cases happen at the hands of non-anesthesiologists. And those are not the providers that are going to do CME in, um, during anesthesia meetings, right? So they actually have to seek out that education and it may not be compulsory um, in other disciplines. Other things we, that we've noticed is the gross overdosing of drugs. So despite the fact that um, there are clear guidelines for certain drugs um, and they're in the drug inserts, people continue to give a lot more than is suggested and not just for the healthy 70 kilogram male, but also they don't take into consideration those risk factors that um, I mentioned before. The other trend that we saw is the resurgence of lidocaine as the main culprit of toxicity. You know, for years, we've all been taught that bupivacaine is the bad drug and lidocaine is pretty much inert. In fact, we think it's so safe that many of our colleagues give 100 milligrams of IV lidocaine on every induction of anesthesia, right? Um, but that's not that's not the case anymore. And in fact, 66% of the uh, the cases that we reviewed for this paper showed that lidocaine was involved in toxicity. Um, part of it is that it happens at the hands of non-anesthesiologists, and the other part that is starting to come out is surgeons using it for airway topicalization, um, but also the use of intravenous lidocaine infusions um, that are now becoming part of ERIS protocols for post-operative analgesia. So we have seen some case reports that um, um, toxicity from that. And here's something I think that really illustrates it. And this is a real life example of why education doesn't always work. And just two weeks ago, I was taking care of an elderly cachectic patient with end-stage renal disease for creation of an AV fistula. This patient had a upper extremity block that in our institution, um, all blocks are done by the regional team. About 10 minutes into the procedure, the surgeon was concerned that perhaps the block is patchy and he wanted to augment with some more lidocaine on the field. I asked him to wait a few minutes. I wanted to double check how much bupivacaine the patient received preoperatively, to which the surgeon responded, well, it doesn't matter. It's just lidocaine. I can still give my four milligrams per kilogram. At that moment, I did confirm that actually this patient received the maximum dose per kilogram of lidocaine, which actually, considering his comorbidities, I already thought was too much. 
And I relayed that to the surgeon, to which once again, he said, it doesn't matter. It's just lidocaine. I can still give as much lidocaine as I want. And he proceeded to do so. So here there was education staring him right in the face, but it was ignored. So people really need to, be, need to want to be educated. And then lastly, treatment. We know that um, liver resuscitation works well. For those of you who have seen it in practice, and I have seen it several times, it's like magic. But once again, in order to work, blast has to be recognized and this treatment has to be given promptly. And only about 64% of those case reports in our list recent review showed that it was actually given. So I think part of it stems from the fact that blast is rare, so it may be less recognized, but when comparing to other rare events such as MH, for example, it's actually 50 to 100 times more frequent and 100% iatrogenic. So I think it's just more education, education, and education. Thanks, Marina, for that really comprehensive reply. I, I think the point about um, dose limits and adjusting it for risk factors is really important. I think people take the fact that the dose limits are prone to this variation as a as a um, license to give more than you should. Perhaps it's time for us to start looking at um, recommendations that take into account these risk factors, like older patients and patients with uh, with uh, organ dysfunctions. And we perhaps uh, as a society, Ezra or Ezra should think about uh, if we can rationalize some of this. Great, Kareem. I'm going to hand it over to you for our for our last speaker and paper. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Marina, absolutely amazing paper and the graphics in it are brilliant. Everyone should print them out and put them in every anesthetic room and operating theater. Um, again, I'm not biased at all. Um, uh, so that really brings us on really nicely to last and certainly not least um, uh, is, is David Bogod, who um, many of you will know is former uh, editor-in-chief of the journal um, and medical legal expert. Um, and, and, and Marina, you talked a little bit about how rare local anesthetic toxicity is. Uh, so I'm going to actually bring that to, to David and, and, and say, hey, you know, should we be telling patients about the risk of a local anesthetic toxicity, given how rare it actually is? Okay, uh, so thanks very much for that question, Kareem. Um, the answer is, does the reasonable patient uh, want to know about this potential risk mm. uh, and some patients will want to know about it and some patients won't want to know about it but I think most reasonable patients will probably want to know that the dose of local anaesthetic you are intending to give to them if administered incorrectly uh, might produce life-threatening immediate life-threatening complications I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to uh, to suggest uh, and that's the principles of consent upon which we must work we must work upon what this particular patient patient in front of us wants to know, uh, mm. assuming that they are a reasonable person. Uh, and so rare, but uh, really nasty complications such as last, such as permanent nerve damage, we really do have to highlight them to patients, especially because when it comes to regional anesthesia, there is a perfectly viable alternative, which is general anesthesia. Mm. Uh, and consent becomes much more important when there is a viable alternative route which the patient can choose. And you can imagine that as a patient yourself. Mm. 
Now, now, so the question that, that comes to my mind is, um, you know, how do we present an accurate and honest picture of these risks without actually alarming or stressing the patient out? Because, you know, if I talk to a patient about local anesthetic toxicity, you're going to get numbness around your mouth, yada, yada, yada. And in contrast, we could just knock you out, okay? So, so, so patients might perceive that in, in, in an alarming fashion. How do we actually give an accurate and honest picture in that setting? So I'll kind of give you the official answer and my unofficial answer. So the official answer is you get the information across with good uh, educational aids for the patients or in for information aids for the patients. And uh, many of the organisations represented by this group today produce excellent patient information leaflets. Uh, and they are not a substitute for consent, they're not a substitute for providing information face-to-face, but they are hugely helpful. Uh, and the Royal College of Anaesthetists, for example, has some very good leaflets on the impact of regional, an- uh, regional anaesthesia, the risks and benefits. Yeah. My unofficial answer is that there's one thing they never highlight in these leaflets. And to me, it's really important. I think it is to the patients because I'm, as I get older, I'm much more of a patient than a doctor these days. Uh, and it is this. Everybody in, on this screen at the moment is capable of giving an incredibly successful general anaesthetic. Uh, but... Everyone who's not on, all the anaesthetists who aren't on this screen at the moment, are not necessarily capable of giving a very good regional anaesthetic. Regional anaesthesia is hugely more operator dependent than general anaesthesia is. Mm. Uh, And I would happily receive my next general anaesthetic from about 90% of the anaesthetists I know. But if they were offering to get near my brachial plexus with a sharp needle and an ultrasound machine, it's probably about 2% of the anaesthetists I know. Uh, And the most important thing that a reasonable patient wants to know is how good are you at this? And I think that's information that you have to be able to get across. And how you do that is very much in your own uh, your own decision as to how you achieve it. And the other thing is this, that the better you are at doing it, the more keen you are to do it. So the harder it is to present an unbiased choice of the other alternatives as well. So I think we have to bear all of that into account when we are seeking consent from a patient. Mm, it's really, really complicated um, uh, subject and, and that's actually one of the reasons why I really enjoyed your paper and I've told you you and your co-author this repeatedly Kate how how much that paper really helped me in understanding how to consent my patients it, it is actually much more complicated the biggest challenge is to do all of that under the time pressure that we have uh, uh, you know uh, with in a setting that probably isn't necessarily conducive to a healthy conversation that you would want to have with someone um, uh, so so my final question to you is how do we actually bring all that together bring in what we are capable of our skills our expertise the risks of the technique themselves and the setting uh, and the timing of doing of taking consent from patients and ideally, we would have the same length of time or even more to sit down with the patient than as the surgeon does. And at the same time as well, patients, these are things that patients need to consider prior to coming anywhere near you and your needle. Uh, and they need time to consider, to, to uh, perhaps to look up more information uh, and to make decisions. And they can't do that in the anesthesia room. Um, and um, we wrote this guidance just before uh, the General Medical Council came out with their new latest guidance on consent, which is downloadable from the GMC website. But again, it really does stress the need to have the facilities uh, and the personnel and the time and the money to be able to get this information across adequately Mm. and it says that there is some burden upon us to speak to those in charge of managing us 
if those facilities aren't available. And I think that's absolutely right. We can use that as a weapon to a certain extent to get better mm -hmm. facilities, better preoperative clinics and so on. Mm, okay, amazing, brilliant. So, so really, consent also involves taking on a, a lot more responsibility as the operator than than being a passive deliverer of information. I guess. Um, uh, totally, totally, absolutely, especially when it is as operator dependent as we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, that's. Um, I'd love for this uh, discussion to carry on all night, uh, but I've got um, uh, eight more guests to let in um, for the second session. Uh, which will begin in a few minutes. Uh, but thank you very much, everyone. That was absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure you'll agree that's um, a really novel and, and, and really effective way of getting across all those papers to our readers. Uh, and uh, what I would say now is make sure you go to the journal website and download those papers, which are all free, uh, and enjoy them. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much, Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. The Anesthesia Podcast.